Welcome to the Perfume Room. I am recording this on Halloween, which as you get to hear me talk about all year round, means that yesterday was my big Scorpio birthday. Another year around the sun for me, and you know what? I am feeling good. So let me share the scents that I wore this weekend. On Saturday night, I went to dinner and karaoke with some friends, and I will just say that I unknowingly picked a restaurant that 100% is where all of the NYU kids go because they know they won't get carded. My table probably brought the median age in there to like mm, 22. And at one point they actually played Baby Shark. Um, Yes, I did spend my birthday at a restaurant where hits such as Baby Shark play in the dining room. Anyway, my friends sitting next to me were like, oh, this is our son's favorite song. And that was really the moment that I felt my age. Anyway, ironically, what I was wearing that night was a fragrance combo that's kind of an homage to my 20s. It was a layering combo that I wore almost daily from 2016 to 2019, which was a white amber oil. Um, This year I was wearing 1509 oil layered with the Lavo Bergamot 22. And then on my actual birthday yesterday, I went to a more formal dinner and for that I wore Zerjoff Apollonia. And I chose that because it's just such a regal sort of ladylike Oris. The best way that I can describe it is if you imagine the smell of Narciso for her, that musky feel, but with like a buttery cloud-like Oris cocoon. It is so perfect. And I think it speaks volumes to the fact that one night I was wearing a signature scent combo that I wore in my 20s. And the next night I wore a scent that sort of represents the energy I want to project in this next decade to come. Anyway, let's get to our guest because last week you heard me wax poetic about this rooty, almost parsnipy fragrance that I was enjoying called Gorseland from Joram Studio. I had never smelled anything like it before. And today you'll hear me chat with the brains and nose behind that scent, Ewan McCall and Chloe Mullen. They are the co-founders of this Scottish fragrance line, Joram Studio. Ewan being the perfumer who creates the juice and Chloe, the brains behind the packaging and design elements. Based in Edinburgh, Joram is one of the only, if not the only fragrance brand out of Scotland. And their roots go beyond just being a fragrance line. In fact, in 2010, they actually started as an oil house under the name Joram Laboratories. After almost a decade of formulating fragrances for other brands, in 2019, the duo launched their own line, Joram Studio. Their fragrances are irreverent, experimental and daring, and of course, all done in-house. In this episode, you'll hear all about their entrepreneurial journey, what inspires their fragrances, the painstaking specificity of how they facet certain notes to bring out underlying lesser-known qualities of certain raw materials, and Ewan admits that he has a bit of a heavy hand when it comes to Oris, which perhaps explains my instant love of this brand. Here are Chloe and Ewan. Ewan and Chloe, welcome to the perfume room all the way from Scotland. How are you doing today? Very Good. well, thanks. So, okay, before we get into Joram Studio, because I've got many questions, I always start the podcast by asking the following question, which is, what are you wearing today? Fragrance-wise, of course. Today I'm wearing Athenaeum, um, which mm. is one of our fragrances from Selective Memory Collection, which is, a, I really like it this time of year in autumn. It's got a nice sort of earthy patchouli um, facet to it, which I, I really like for sort of autumn mm. autumn wearing. 
I've been in the lab all day, so I'm covered in multiple different materials, but <laughs> not wearing any specific perfume. But if I was, I would probably follow Chloe and wear Atherium or um, maybe Firewater. It's a bit cold here, so that will warm us up. Mm. I think. Good choice. Yeah, as you're saying this, I'm getting perfume envy because I have only tried a handful of your fragrances and I was just enamored, but those are two that I have not got my hands on. So I'm like, I got to I gotta get some more. Um, so what are your guys' thoughts on signature scents or sort of like a, a signature scent profile? I, mean, I suppose it's probably different for you, and um, but I, I always seem, or at least recently, approach fragrance more as... Um, almost trying to sort of affect my mood. Um, so it used to be that in sort of times gone by, I'd be more of a, a profile sort of kind of kind of person. I'd, I'd always sort of lean towards more sort of um, powdery fragrances and a little bit more sort of floral. But since the pandemic, I think my, my approach to fragrance and how I wear it's really changed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of, it's not true for everyone, but it's kind of true for a lot of people that they've started to sort of realize that what you wear can really affect how you're feeling or reflect how you want to how you want to feel so that's usually sort of my go-to now is well how do I want to feel today and that's right sort of how I choose a fragrance I, I feel similarly yeah and for me I kind of approach it from the perfumer's angle where I think it's it's great that people have um a signature scent uh and that can evolve over time, uh, much like our taste in food or, or drink can. Mm-hmm. Um, but personally, I, I, I don't have a, a signature or approach it in that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's probably due more to occupation than any other uh, thing. Yeah, Trying to have as l- least amount of bias towards a, a, a profile um, as, as, as possible. Well, that's interesting you say that you're talking about bias. When you are creating fragrances, do you have a particular consumer in mind? Are you guys always the consumers first, and then you hope that other people will enjoy it as well? That's a that's a good question. Um, we don't think that we are the arbiters of taste, um, yeah, but we do make fragrances for our own enjoyment, and we hope that uh, others enjoy that equally. Um, but with that said, we don't set out to make a fragrance for a specific demographic or, or person. Mm-hmm. We just we just hope that what we want to create resonates with enough people to make it last on the market. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't set out with any um any agenda to you know tick a box that we're aiming for anyone's set of customers. Okay, the last question I ask at the beginning of every episode and then we will get all into Joram is do you guys have any fragrance, hot takes, controversial opinions, something that other people in the industry might not necessarily agree with you on? I'll let you intake this. Oh, there's probably <laughs> many. <laughs> but, yeah, we um, we like to be observers from the site. Uh, yeah, and, and due to the fact that we do formulate and manufacture for other clients, we do kind of keep our ear to the ground and uh, we're kind of watch the market um, as in a kind of sweeping sense. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of, uh, you maybe call it COVID perfumers or COVID brands that mm. have launched almost 
progressing from being a hobby uh, and hobbyist, mm-hmm. but it saturates saturates the market. Um, and a lot of there's also you know pockets of good out there, but there's also quite a lot of rubbish as well. Um, and it it can be. I suppose the concern is more for the individuals because we've been doing this for a long time and know on both ends of it, you know, from the fragrance house side, all of the compliance work that we you have to do to be legal and compliant on the market with a product, as well as, you know, building and scaling a brand. And there's quite a big difference between the two. Right. But the concern is is really we hope that people don't put too much of their sort of livelihood at risk uh, in doing this because it's a brutal market as well. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it's, it's can be quite, quite um, aggressive <laughs> as a marketplace. You know, you, you, right. you're inherently competing and working against quite big players. Yeah. And so it's, it's just an observation that I've made that there's so many people who are now perfumers are launching their own brand and they don't quite have the capital or the, uh, the know-how or experience to, to really do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting too, because I think a lot of people do have a, see this sort of perception. You you know, you see a new indie brand launch and you think, oh, well look at the ease with how, with which they launched, but you don't realize that behind it, they were partnering with a Furmanish or a Jividon or a Simrise. Exactly. And that's what I think is so interesting about you guys, because I saw that you started in 2010 as your own fragrance oil house and you're Scotland's own the only fragrance house in Scotland to date so I would love to learn more about Joram Laboratories and the sort of evolution of Joram Laboratories to Joram Studio. Absolutely yeah I think that's that's a a good observation you know I'm talking from experience we did this you know almost a decade ago taking on big clients and thinking great phenomenal Mm -hmm. Who would have thought they would choose us? And then you start to feel the uh, the sweat starts to uh, kind of develop on your your brow, and you start to go, "I have, I don't I have, yeah. I don't have twenty thousand dollars to buy that piece of software, but I need the documents." Right. Okay, wait. So, so let's <laughs> yeah. get into that. Tell me about about when you started taking on clients ten years ago, and the sweat was forming on your brow, and just how you how you established yourself as Scotland's leading and only fragrance oil house yeah i'd like to say that yeah these were kind of yeah there was a a huge amount of initial um graft but admittedly when i set up the business it was almost as a, a a direct need to furnish a handful of clients that had come to Mm -hmm. me directly through recommendations Mm -hmm. so when i set up i basically set up with two or three um clients um which isn't the story that many people tell of you know they had to work day and night to get their first client that isn't the case and i don't feel right um ashamed or embarrassed to say that all of the hard work came after that point yeah Yeah. getting that one Mm. big account was the thing which basically started with the sweat on the brow and the sleepless nights and the worry that hey i've definitely bitten off way more than i can chew here and mm. it's that naivety, that youthful naivety, which is actually very critical to our story. Um, because, yeah. Yeah. you know, even now, some of the one or two of the accounts that I took on first off, we would consider these between ourselves for a, a fairly long 
amount of time before just saying, yeah, let's do that. Because you have to be conscious of your capabilities. And, you know, when you're young and eager to make those first moves, you agree to things, you know, flippantly. And then you start to realize. Like, I can do it, yeah. And then you get it. Can. And you're like, yeah. with great you power comes great responsibility, yeah. right? Absolutely. And even to this day, I don't know how I managed to pull off those initial accounts, but it did. Uh, and, but yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the very start of the story is, you know, a friend recommending me and me taking on probably still our biggest job to date, you know, from end to end. And that kind of set the, the, the wheels in motion. Um, yeah. But mm. it certainly wasn't easy from that point onwards. That kind of lulled me into a false sense of security. Of like, yeah, this is great. These huge international drinks brands are going to hand you gigs left, right and centre. No. Mm-hmm. First, and there was a long time between getting that gig and the next gig and a huge steep learning curve in between. What was your um, training in perfumery? Straight from school, I went and worked for a large fragrance company. You know, I wanted to mm-hmm. pursue perfumery as uh, as a as a career. Um, but being in Scotland, being no fragrance industry here, mm-hmm. that wasn't really an option. But I seen mm-hmm. an advertisement for a job in a perfume shop, um, and I said I'm going to apply to that. And it was for a Sunday position. You know, Sunday worker uh which i applied to got the job kind of impressed them that i had all of this knowledge before starting the job it's kind of unusual um and then that company put me through training um they put me through formal training uh down south in england and then as part of that job role it expanded over a couple of years to working with the mpd teams or new product development teams mm-hmm. liaising through intermediaries with the big fragrance formulation companies, Ferminet, Givadon, Robite, Technico mm-hmm. Flor, um, and also on the manufacturing side, which I think is, again, quite crucial to the setting up of journal laboratories, is having this window into what happens after the oil has been blended by these people called perfumers. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's almost the start of the finished product. Mm-hmm. You, it then has to depend on the application. If it's a fine fragrance or a candle or a lotion or hair product, it then has the fragrance has to be added to different application bases and then getting this window into, um, for the most part, subcontractors who take the fragrance oil and then blend it with alcohol and filter it and age it and macerate. That was kind of crucial um, because it gave me the ability to offer a full end-to-end service. So clients would come to us, we would take their concept, make the fragrance oil, and then also allow them to make the product as a finished product, you know, in an alcohol base, say, mm-hmm. um, which usually you have to outsource. So for a long time, we were kind of a one-stop shop, and that allowed smaller companies, people with smaller budgets, to actually launch a brand or launch a new product without having these huge insane minimums where the oil producer is saying buy 25 kilos of this and then the person down the road who's you know diluting in alcohol says well we need you to buy 50 kilos of oil because we only touch x number of thousands of bottles and then the packaging person Mm -hmm. you know we, we we managed to break down some of those 
barriers to entry for a lot of small players and offer our service as end-to-end saying, no, you don't have to buy 25 kilos, you can buy five kilos. And most subcontractors would touch you know, five kilos worth of diluted product to bottle it, we'll bottle it for you. We'll package it for you. We'll label it. We'll do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it kind of facilitated a lot of people on the early starts of their business at the same time of the early stages of our own business. Um, and then from there, I've trained with various different perfumers and um, the late, great Dr. George Dodd, who was the only perfumer in Scotland, but Irish perfumer based up in the Highlands. He was a kind of... Um, a person who said, you know, I should pursue this. And now we are custodians of his raw material archive, which um, sits right. pride of place within our store. So people can go and try Givadon bases from 1920-1910, which he had That's collected amazing. himself and kind of handed down to us when he passed. Um, so we're custodians of his wow. archive as well. Um, but yeah, it's... Wow. That's amazing. So, so you were talking about, you know, that there has only been one other Scottish perfumer. What is the fragrance scene in Scotland? Is it exclusively you guys? Um, for the most part, yeah. I mean, there's Bath and Body companies and candle companies, and some of them have uh, perfumes, you know, Aran Aromatics based on Isle of Aran. They've been in business since about 1982, making candles and body lotions and they have had perfumes um, as Mm -hmm. well but they haven't been known for their perfumes necessarily they've been known for their candles and amenities and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing but apart from us there's uh, a woman based in Glasgow um, and she uh, runs workshops perfumery workshops and works with university students but I mean that's kind of the scene Uh, us the girl in Glasgow um, and then a few of the the companies would tend to be based on the Outer Hebrides. Each individual island pretty much has their own candle and bath and body company. Yeah, it'll be the Isle of mm-hmm. Sky Candles or Iron Aromatics or Essence of Harris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they all have their own little sort of industries themselves, uh, which is great. Um, but mm-hmm. no one doing perfume, artisan, niche, luxury perfume, no one kind of wow. in that space. Um, so... So with that said, what was perfume like in your guys' lives growing up? Were you wearing a lot of fragrances? Were you surrounded by people who were very fragrant? I, I wasn't really at all. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to be totally honest, I never even thought about any fragrance until sort of my early 20s. Um, until then, sort of I'd, been, I'd always been gifted fragrance, and I'd never actually had any input into what fragrance I was gifted, and I'd never actually thought about the fact that, you know, I'm wearing this, this is a reflection of me. I just sort of <laughs> took what I was given and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I remember my mum being very into fragrance, but not in any way that was sort of, I suppose, any different to any other sort of mum that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until that I got a job in a, a perfume store when I was um, at university that I really started to be sort of exposed to um, more complex fragrances outside of sort of the mass market realm mm-hmm. and sort of got a, a better insight into the industry as well that I realized, you know, it's a, it's a whole universe that is, is really fascinating and, and, you know, the different oils and also, you know, how the same fragrance note or the same material can be so different depending on where it comes from and that whole, sort of that is a, a separate universe in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, relative to sort of, 
people who say that you know they, it's always been a, a passion for them, like you. And um, I wasn't really wasn't really like that, um, mm. which I think is I, in some ways I quite like that. I think it gives me a, a slightly more sort of um, naive approach to things, um, which sometimes I think it's, it's good to balance that more sort of nuanced approach with something a little mm -hmm. bit more sort of basic, I suppose. <laughs> well, it's like a curious consumer perspective. Like you can yeah. approach one of your fragrances as someone who would truly just walk into your shop might experience it, right? In a, yeah, or exactly. At this point, probably not, but at, to, to an yeah. extent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was, um, it's, I think it's, I've obviously, um, far, far further down the line now, but I like to sort of remind myself back to that person mm -hmm. and remind myself that, you know, any any new people I speak to about fragrance, they might not know the same things that I know. And right. they might not be um, sort of as well-versed in fragrance and sort of remind myself of the person I used to be when it came to things like that and be able to sort of um, communicate with them on that level rather than sort of always being more highbrow when it comes to discussion around fragrance but then also mm -hmm. being able to switch it up with people who are veterans in the industry and still be able to sort of keep up with a conversation with them as well right um and keep that balance i think yeah and probably in complete opposition to chloe i had no choice in the matter of being involved in perfume <laughs> yeah. my uh my grandmother but both my grandparents they uh, they started a business in the 50s, which was a gardening business, and they were absolutely obsessed with plants and flowers and trees and just horticulture mm -hmm. in general. Um, but I used to spend quite a lot of time with my grandparents every second weekend, half of the summer, if not the full summer holidays, I'd spend with them. A lot of it was kind of child labor. <laughs> I had to go and help them in the garden and help them in the business and what have you. But um, that passion that they had for um, plant and flowers and aroma also seeped into perfume. My grandmother was a perfume nut. Before it was cool to be obsessed mm. with perfume, <laughs> she had hundreds of perfumes. Um, and Wow. You know, what was she that, wearing? Um, lots of classic stuff, you know, Guerlain, um, Chanel, um, uh, long van, all of the big classics, but she was also very progressive. She used to buy new launches, you know, new perfumes. Mm -hmm. I can remember her um, buying and wearing uh, Margiela's Untitled, you know, complete kind of cyborg galbanum iris musk thing, mm -hmm. but she used to buy anything that she yeah, liked the smell of. I love that. And sometimes, you know, you can actually kind of trace back the DNA, you know, the Margiela Untitled was not too distant from Chanel 19. And I was just was, gonna say, right, yeah. So she was always looking for new, um, you know, so that was kind of an obsession that she passed on to me, which um, I'm completely thank thankful for, you know. Perfume and fragrances and the topic of it has always been in my life to quite a big degree, which, um, yeah, again, I'm, I'm thankful for it because it's quite an obscure mm. thing for kids to be exposed to it maybe not so much now but you know even growing right. up in the 90s say not everyone who was going yeah. back to school and thinking about perfumes or plants and flowers but right. it's completely natural to do that right. yeah but it just it wasn't what right. kids did uh, certainly not from where I was from yeah it just wasn't the thing yeah right yeah. well my my wheels are spinning as you're saying this because I feel like it's starting to check out that you grew up around so many flowers and gardening 
because some of the notes in your fragrances, and I, I was actually, I recorded a solo episode of my podcast that came out this week, and I was talking about Joram Studio and how impressed I was. But some of these notes, and it just might be like <laughs> my dense, like I might just be dense and like not know a lot of, you know, notes. But I was looking at the notes in Gorslin because that was the fragrance that hooked me. And the backstory of that is that I went into Scent Bar in L.A., and I was asking uh, the girl who was working there um, if she had anything that felt really rooty and starchy and turn up almost like adjacent to like an orris or an iris, mm-hmm. but like just something else that was very like a rooty vegetable. And she recommended Gorsland and mm-hmm. I smelled it and I was like, this gives me some sort of like turn up or parsnip type thing going on. And yeah. I was I was sure there was something like that in there. So I was like, I have to see what the notes are. And then I looked up the notes and I was like, is this a potion? Like the notes were like <laughs> catchfly, woodruff, milk vetch, zravitz. I'm like, I I thought I knew fragrance materials. I thought I knew raw materials. I have no idea what any of these are. And admittedly, you know, sometimes we spend not so much now that we we have in the past spent quite a lot of time what we would say in the field yeah out in Mm -hmm. nature smelling things and sometimes a lot of the times in fact most of the time you come across these endemic plants and you pick them up Mm -hmm. and you smell them they smell fantastic or they're very Mm -hmm. you know very muted aroma we have no idea what they are you know Mm -hmm. not botanist i can't pick them up and say oh that's a milk vetch or or what have you so you have to then go and research you know taking pictures on your phone using one of these kind of find my plant type apps and it gives you a kind of, and then you've got the name of the thing now, you know, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you can, but a lot of our work is because you can't extract from a lot of these plants, even though they're aromatic and they smell great. A lot of the time we're making notes in the field so we can go back mm-hmm. to the laboratory and recreate them using other materials, natural right. synthetics to recreate that, right. that profile. Um, but yeah. yeah, it isn't like we have this encyclopedia of all these fantastic endemic or local plants you know we we mm-hmm. find things and we smell them and they think what on earth is that yeah it wow. smells a bit like an orchid yeah. or it smells a bit like a, a geranium or something that's quite adjacent to something quite well known but then you do a little bit more digging and you realize that it's called this or it's called that and yeah that's how it mm-hmm. smells um so yeah that's sometimes it's a little bit kind of cheeky of us to um, yeah find these no, more obscure it. notes and and put it in there I love this idea of just having these really experimental and fun notes. And I will say that the first impression that I got from that fragrance was just this sort of irreverence. And I just felt like I I didn't know about your brand. And I was like, whoever is behind it, I feel like they are having fun with it. I feel like it just seems like something where you're like in the lab and you're like, what if we put that in? Like that's, there's just this, this playful obscurity in your fragrances that when I tried some of the others, just that that through line was throughout and it's very joyous and, and fun to wear and to smell. I think that's probably the biggest compliment we could be given, yeah, because yeah. to be able, someone having fun at whatever they're creating is one thing, but for end users to be able to uh, to feel that is is is, is rarer, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that that's kind of, the takeaway that you that you had from experiencing or trying the 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 entire or some of the some of the line because that's kind of really how we how we work you know we mm-hmm. we, 
we get a lot of joy from materials. We get a lot of joy from perfume mm-hmm. and other yeah. people's perfume, our mm-hmm. own perfume. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah. hopefully that comes through it into the end product. Yeah, because yeah, mm-hmm. we, we do have fun. We also have a lot of frustration and <laughs> yeah, a lot of um, hard times making fragrances or yeah, scratching our head at the price increases of certain materials. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, there's ultimately it's a lot of joy um, to 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 just making fragrance. Um, yeah, to do what you love. Right. Yeah. Hello, it's me. I am just letting you guys know that the Savory Gourmand Smell Club registration and sample packs will be going on sale this week. Stay tuned, more info to come. If you are already on the mailing list, you will get an email from me. And if not, check my Instagram stories for the release of tickets and sample packs. Let's get back to the episode. Well, speaking of expensive uh, materials, and this is a good segue because there is a beautiful iris tapestry behind you. Yeah. I want to talk about trimmeris because I am an Oris fanatic. Um, it is my favorite note. I love a great Oris fragrance. And when I smell trimmeris, I, ha- I have little blotters in front of me. But I was just like, this is it. Like you just bottled the complexity and the beauty of the Oris bulb in a way that is just so... I, I don't know. I, I would love for you to talk about trimmeris and what the inspiration was and how you decided to facet it. And it somehow smells so like straightforward orris butter, but there's so many other notes in there as well that really play up what orris butter smells like. Yeah, I mean, I, like you, are abs- yeah, obsessed with orris yeah, as, a, as a material and as a perfume note or sensation. Yeah, if I was to look at my own personal collection, there would probably be, I don't even know how many Oris type perfumes, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. it's just a, Same. it's it's just a, a, a very comforting smell uh, to me mm-hmm. personally, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, maybe that's got something to do with the Chanel nineteen or something from yeah, definitely. back back then. But yeah, I, I did admittedly spend a lot of time making Trimorous. It was almost three years, not of constant work, but intermittent work. Um, so it yeah. took a long time um, because it. With something like trimmeris, it's very much a a balancing act, and every single material that's there is in there almost as a functional, um, or at least it plays a functional role. It isn't there to just to pad out the the formula. It, it's it's there to really do some specific work within the formula. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I suppose I, I both love and get frustrated about other people's orises is they can be a little bit textbook. You know, they can fall into the overly powdery side or they might be paired with a a big dosage of Ambroxan, say, or they could be more on the chocolate side of the spectrum or they could be more singularly violet. But from working with oris for a very long time and doing a lot of research on the actual material I kept coming to these sort of conclusions that a lot of the uh, the really beautiful parts of the Oris as a material um, are what a lot of perfumers tend to leave out or, or, or discard and those were the um, the effervescent quality which the material possesses 
right. and the slightly more functional role that it exalts within the formula. So it pushes other notes higher in the register and the impact of how the fragrance wears. Um, but also the, the the acidic quality, which Oris has, yeah, because um, almost half of the the butter itself is is, is acid. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so these are the types of notes which are a little bit more um, unconventional, mm-hmm. and perfumers tend to go well. Most people like the powdery smell, so I'll make my Oris powdery, or mm-hmm. they like that slightly chocolatey note, so I'll make my more chocolate, mm-hmm. but. Looking at the the chemistry of the the auras, there was these particular chemicals that were, um, you know, within the, the 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 composition of the the oil or the or the the butter, um, which I thought these are almost like little hidden elements that people are kind of overlooking or just discarding, and that's really what I focused on is these three different elements within trimerous. But mm-hmm. you know, Trimbris is by no means a simple formula. It's 50 mm-hmm. plus materials, 52, right. 54 materials. So there's a lot going on there, but it doesn't smell like a, a kind of a material soup. It smells like mm-hmm. you just picked up a big block of Oris butter and stuck your nose in it and right. you get that profile. Um, but And it's so buttery, like it really has like a buttery feel yeah. to it, the texture of it. Yeah. And again, a lot of that... A lot of it does come from using real Oris, which, you know, right. a lot of perfumes, which even smell very Oris-like, don't use any Oris, whereas we mm-hmm. do use real Oris in trimmers, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very expensive material, as you well know. Um, if you looked at the formula of trimmers and you you knew how to read a formula, you'd be sitting going, oh, okay, so there's little clashes appearing mm-hmm. all the way through the formula, and it creates this... Um, sort of intangible quality, uh, which mm-hmm. is, um, yeah, that's that's what took the, the long um, time, was just mm-hmm. figuring all this out and, you know, actually thinking you're going to put 0.4% cardamom and then you realise you actually need to increase it, but just by a notch because it mm-hmm. isn't quite sitting there. So it was very painstakingly just tiny little shifts in materials just to give, uh, just to arrive at that end point. Mm-hmm. The other notes which don't kind of sing through as much uh, is just a very high quality pink pepper, um, which again sort of um, reinforces that slight spicy quality, mm-hmm. but also that almost uh, liquid or mercurial element which Oris possesses, mm-hmm. and actually playing down a lot of the the kind of um, the more um, obvious. You know, mm-hmm. not saturating it with ionone, uh, right. which gives it that nice kind of velvety, violet, floral element, playing down those right. notes where traditionally they would be really high in the blend. Right. In trimmers, right. there there aren't they aren't high. People would be surprised if they were to assess it and go, "Oh God, you've you know, you've only used whatever's in there, I can't remember, yeah, less than 2% ionone or what have you. Yeah, right. it, it, it doesn't right. follow that convention. I don't know. As I was smelling your fragrances, I just feel like you capture this this essence and that, that feels, I don't, I don't even know how to put it into words. I just like, even with um, Pentimento, which is another sample I have, I saw mm. that there was a carob note in this and carob is such a yeah. rarely used fragrance ingredient. 
I've smelled so many cacao fragrances. I've smelled so many chocolate fragrances, even if it's more of the, you know, white chocolate sort of synthetic mm-hmm. type sweet variety. And when I smelled this, I obviously got something sweet, but it was like a bitter sweetness. And it was almost just sort of like, just like a velvety, like nice, I don't know. It's just so beautiful. A lot of the materials that feature in our fragrances, they're perhaps materials which are no longer used as much as they were, but they are still common um, or or less common now, fragrance mm-hmm. materials like carob, um, mm-hmm. you know, which um, has never been a, a, a material which has been used prolifically through time, but it has mm-hmm. been part of the perfumer's palette for a century plus, you know, it, it's an old mm-hmm. material. Um, it isn't a new innovation. It's been around for a long time, but perfumers have probably due to cost have veered away from it. It's very easy to buy uh, or, or produce molecules which smell like carob or chocolate and they mm-hmm. cost nothing to, to, to make. Whereas to really extract uh, carob is an expensive process. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the time we're looking at our archive and the archive that's been handed down to us by other perfumers, and we're looking at these materials and go, oh, yeah, no one's used that for, to the best of my knowledge, for a long time. Let's mm-hmm. find the best supplier of that. Let's get a sample. Let's use it in a formula and see where it goes. And, you know, Pentimento is yeah. exactly that. Yeah, working on that nutty, hazelnut, chocolate type thing, it just mm-hmm. needed a, a naturalness, but not from cacao not from chocolate. It needed to sit somewhere in between a chocolate and a nutty type profile, but also not just tonka right. bean. <laughs> yeah. And so the answer was lying in carob, which has this very rummy type booziness. So in all of your fragrances, and I have so many more that I need to smell, what would you say is the Joram Studio and or Joram Laboratories sort of signature that people, the through line throughout your your collection or your molecules? I think um, you, Ewan probably would disagree, but I think Ewan has a very particular signature, Um which is kind of two-pronged. I think there's definitely, he puts a lot of sort of heart and soul into what he creates. So you definitely, whatever he's feeling, you do feel in the fragrance, whether it's, you know, a, a touch of sadness, you know, wanting to be slightly more cheeky. I think you can definitely feel that in particular different fragrances. But then from a technical point of view, I always think he has a, a very artistic way of making things feel almost worn in. Mm-hmm. They already feel as if, even you know, on first spray of, of the fragrances, they feel as if they've already been on someone's skin. They've already matured. They never feel sort of harsh or sharp in any way. They feel as if they've already really sort of developed. Mm-hmm. And then you're, the rest of the development that you're experiencing is like the tail end of it. Mm-hmm. You've only really got that sort of more developed part of the story and everything else has sort of already happened before you've sprayed it, which I think is a really... Um, unusual um, technique or approach. I've, I've never experienced that with other fragrances that I've tried before. And I think that's what a lot of people sort of um, gravitate towards as well, that sense of it almost feels quite comforting already, mm-hmm. um, which I really like. Every time he creates something, I always 
you know, I feel very com comforted by it already, even if it's a sort of a first mod, I think, oh, it's done. Like, that's where I want it to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's um, I've said it a number of times that, you know, taking a, a formula to the point whereby it's accepted universally is one thing, but we always like to just go on another couple of stages after that to kind of soften some of the edges, just to to make it feel that little bit worn in, yeah. Yeah, you can always feel that a, a human being has made them. They've crafted these fragrances. It never feels um, that sort of formulaic, I suppose, mm -hmm. or, or sort of robotic in that way. That's, yeah, definitely. I, I fully agree, and I love the idea of talking about that they just have that like slightly more finished element, that slightly more lived in feel, because that's definitely the vibe that I get when I wear these. And I'm curious, have you ever just like perceive, like seen a vision of how it's going to smell and then gone backwards? Or is it more of like you have a concept and then you work towards it? 90% of the time, the the target profile or the, the aroma, the fragrance uh, is envisioned. You know, mm -hmm. I know where I want to get to um, mm -hmm. and also how oh. to get there mm -hmm. in, in, in fairly loose terms. Yeah, I know that if I use this material, that material, that material, X kind of rough proportions say that that's going to get the desired effect of what, I, what, I, what I'm aiming for. Mm -hmm. And then kind of making it more honed in and, and refined and what have you. But it always starts from knowing where it's going to end up. Mm -hmm. and then taking the steps but the beauty in that process is is that can also change in real time mm -hmm. you know when you set it when you set out and say you're going to use those materials in this way and that's going to achieve the the end result when you start blending and compounding these things you then start going well actually maybe if I changed that white floral note for that one mm -hmm. maybe that maybe that actually in real time that smells better you know whatever that may be, changing the gardenia for jasmine. or So what you might think is the plan can change. You, you need to allow that flexibility. I always liken it to um, a professional musician. You know, a professional musician should be able to play whatever they hear in their head, mm -hmm. whatever combination of notes, however that is, they should be able to, to transcribe that and play it mm -hmm. um, proficiently. And a perfumer should be able to do the same. You know, if you smell raspberries, strawberries, kumquat, what, whatever it is, or if you have a concept in your mind that you want it to smell like a worn-in dress or you know, a, a, an old 1960s Ford, whatever that is, you should be able to execute on that concept right. um, quite proficiently. So when you talk about something like Gorseland and how so many of these ingredients, for example, are things that you smell out on these nature walks and you go and recreate... Is it something similar to that process where you discover milk vetch and then you say, this is what this smells like. Let me think about what in the lab would recreate the smell of milk vetch. It's kind of like that, but you do that with the whole formulas when you're making a specific perfume as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, if, if, if it's um, like Athenaeum, the smell of uh, an Athenaeum or a library or books or that, you know, it, it's in your sort of, your mind's eye, as it were. Right. You're, right. Um, you're, you're, you're capturing how those environments smell. Right. And then you're thinking about the materials that you have at your disposal and what best way to kind of capture that would be. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have to allow some changes to occur. You mm -hmm. can't just be 
it's going to be these 10 or 20 materials and this is how it is it's no you know because as you start to uh to work on your proposed sketch in your mind you then think well maybe if i added some calon here mm-hmm. or maybe if i added a little bit of castorium or or whatever that is you know you should allow some flexibility within that development mm-hmm. process yeah what's been the most unconventional inspiration um for one of your fragrances and which fragrance is it uh definitely phantosmia uh yeah. which was the story of me losing my sense of smell long before covid oh. long before knowing that i didn't this, know this um, happened what what happened yeah it's a, a boring story whereby a material went into <laughs> my nose uh, as can happen yeah but because your nose has a lot of uh, mucosa you really don't want essential oils or uh, fragrance chemicals going up there but quite a lot went up there and it kind of did what it did wow. <laughs> and um yeah it took a couple of weeks to recover wow. fully my sense of smell um but during that time which a lot of people have experienced now during covid is when you're nose and your brain is trying to um yeah reconnect reconnect and reconfigure um you start smelling all these very strange aromas mm. most people are uh universally um described as a burning smell mm-hmm. a sweet burning smell mm. and that's exactly consistent with my own experience but i have three thousand raw materials so when i was smelling them <laughs> I was going and trying to find which one it was. Mm-hmm. What, which one was the closest resemblance to what I was smelling? Because at that time, I didn't know I had phantosmia, this condition mm. of phantom odour. So I kept smelling these things in spaces and then asking Chloe, can you smell that? You know, and smelling, taking a 2,6 xylenol or whatever it was and saying, does it smell? Can you smell? Is that in the room? Because I can smell that. It smells like a burning you know, hairdryer or a microwave or something. Mm-hmm. Nope, isn't here, isn't here, isn't here. Wow. So I kept little notes and diaries of this thing until eventually I realised that it was phantosmia. And once my sense of smell had recovered, going back to this uh, notes and smelling all the individual molecules that I was picking out and trying to uh, find the source of the aroma, I thought, actually, these don't smell that bad. You know, they, they, they in isolation... In their pure form, yeah, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're pungent. But you can work with those and you can blend them and actually perhaps there's going to be something wearable at the end of this ex- this experience. And that was kind of the, um, well, that was the inspiration for Phantosmia is taking all these very industrial smelling burnt aromas and actually making something wearable. I have one final question before we get to the final segment of the show, which is, which scent in your entire line feels most personal to you? It could be your favorite or just one that you feel the most personally attached to. I would probably say Cardus is is my sort of what feels most personal. I think because when you and, and when we were developing the fragrance, it was the one that I absolutely hated. I thought it was, I just didn't understand this fragrance. I thought it was like, who was going to wear it? Who would buy it? I just don't, I just didn't know. And then the more I wore it myself and tested it the more I realized this has some sort of magic Mm. it's you know comforting it it smells almost healing at the same time it's very relaxing but it's also you know 
quite confrontational in a mm -hmm. way. It's just, it's just, it's it's so complex and it's so unusual. And it's the when you the longer you wear it, the more comforting it becomes. And I just, yeah, I just love it. I I love my own personal journey with the fragrance that it's really won me over. And now it's the one that I probably recommend the most to everyone. Um, it's a lot of chamomile. Um, again, it has um, sort of chocolate tonka base, mm -hmm. um, Bengal pepper as well, and it, and say, clary sage, and it's very sort of herbal, mm -hmm. um, slightly honeyed, um, and I almost find even though it has that honeyed element, it, it's almost no sweetness mm. to me. Um, it feels very sort of almost like a pantry mm. kind of smell, mm. uh, which which I love, especially in contrast to more sort of spiced fragrances which have that sort of spice covered feel this is definitely more sort of dry herbal pantry uh which i love mm. yeah i love that <laughs> and for me i think there's a kind of a personal element to all of them mm -hmm. but that's kind of a, a, a cheats way out but trimorous and elegy are probably the most personal mm -hmm. uh because yeah. they're they're kind of uh, elegy is a kind of a an ode to my grandmother who's passed away wow. and she was you know everyone knew her for that type of profile big french style <laughs> classical perfume mm. and you know a nice smoky ash type element behind it as well <laughs> but there's also a lot of a kind of contemporary elements within elegy as well as much as it conforms to a kind of classical chypre it is also it uses a, a lot of, sort of uh, modern molecules and uh, different types of extraction which I think she would have very much enjoyed uh, that kind of so uh, intertwining of vintage as well as modern and then trimorous is kind of uh, in some way a kind of a, a little personal um, sort of hat tilt towards my grandfather who was the gardener and botanist and um, the kind of the personal story with uh, with trimorous is more that it, it's a, it's a kind of a uh, uh, an, an ode to the, the farmers and the people that cultivate and spend their life mm. working with the orris plant. You know, the orris, mm. these farmers, that is their livelihood, is caring and nurturing these plants for three years. And so in its own little way, it's my own little secret story of like, oh, this is for you folks who I'll probably never meet, but I kind of, it's it's for you, you guys, and my grandfather as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, and it smells like my grandfather. Mm. Yeah, he always smelled yeah. like the air, not in a kind of damp, soily, mm -hmm. petrichor, geosmin type direction, right. but but more starchy and, you know, always smelled like he'd been peeling potatoes. <laughs> that's just, that's what I always think. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen the man ever peel a potato in his entire life. But Just had the aroma. He smelled <laughs> like a potato. <laughs> that's the... That's that's what I'm after. I literally want to smell like a potato, like a starchy potato. Yeah. I think that's why I love Oris too. It's like so comforting and it feels like a second skin in a way that isn't damp earth like you were talking about. It's just like it feels like it It takes, it becomes its wearer and its wearer becomes it. It's just so. It's magical and I, I love that. Yeah, it's really magical. I love the idea of just like an ode to the, to the tender care that people yeah. put into the plant because you see this bulb and you don't understand just how much love and time and labor went into it so i i i love that there's lots of plants that we use in perfumery which have a a relatively similar kind of um process but nothing quite like 
the iris. You know, it does right. take a, it's painstaking. Okay, we have a final segment of the show. It is called What's That Smell? Mm, what's That Smell? It is rapid fire scent association. Mm. I will throw out, you know, some more abstract, some more conceptual concepts. You tell me the first smell that comes to mind, and every answer is correct. So whatever comes to your mind. Okay. You and Chloe, are you ready to play What's That Smell? Yeah. Okay, Okay, great. What is the smell of Scotland? Whiskey. (laughs) Heather. Yeah, it smells very Mm. sort of um, dry, I suppose, Mm. and slightly more sort of earthy. Okay, getting more specific, what is the smell of Edinburgh? Hops. Beer being Mm -hmm. brewed. Um, The the entire city, when the breweries, which is about six that circle, and then the the city, they just, the the air just smells like hops. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Doesn't sound like it'd be nice, but it is. No, that sounds, I gotta get, I mean, you know, I need to get to (laughs) Edinburgh one of these days. Go to maybe like the Fringe Festival, get out there. What is the smell of, um, as each of you as a teenager, what is the smell of your teenage years? DRM, original, lots of it. Oris lover, Oris lover, yep. through and through, yeah. it checks out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, it's not, a, it's not a fragrance though, and I've, I've said this before, and it sounds awful, um, but like the smell of hot bins is like a really seminal childhood memory it like reminds me of being on holiday in Spain and Turkey and all these places so that smell of hot bins is kind of like my summer <laughs> so, wait what are bins like like a trash, trash. can okay just making sure I thought that's <laughs> yeah. what you meant but I was like maybe it's like a cool like a no. thing I'm not understanding okay yeah. hot trash okay great okay. <laughs> I thought so um okay what is the smell of love Chloe <laughs> <laughs> um, our dog's paws. The smell of our dog's paws. <laughs> if you had to, if you had to say the closest uh, raw material to your dog's paws, or the closest smell that people listening would know, is there something that's similar? Popcorn. Popcorn. Yeah, popcorn. Yeah. Popcorn or mm. buttered toast. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a you know, <laughs> I I just love knowing the, the way people's animals smell. Okay. Um, what is the smell? Okay, here we go. Let's let's really do this. Ewan, what is the smell of Chloe? Um, hot trash. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, it's it it has a kind of a heliotrope type of powdery element to it because she always has a kind of powdery sort of vibe going on. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, and Chloe, what is the smell of Ewan? Patchouli. patchouli. Yeah, patchouli seems to stick to him like glue. Whenever mm. he uses patchouli, it's everywhere. Mm. <laughs> not the worst, not the worst. Better no. than hot trash, I right? love patchouli, yeah. <laughs> okay, and the final question for both of you. What is the smell of Joram Studio? Oh. Oh, good question. Um, a lot of mistakes and then very <laughs> quick learning from that. Um, uh I probably would say Auris. I would say it's, um, yeah, something I usually zone in on most. Mm. We've got a kind of a, a loose hand when it comes to using Auris, which we really shouldn't because <laughs> it's very expensive. But it, it kind of features, where it, where it needs to feature, it, it features there. Yeah. yeah I, I don't try and resist or fight against the urge to say, ah, Auris needs to go there. Mm-hmm. But 
Yeah, so if it's there and it needs to be there, and you could add Oris in varying degrees to nearly any fragrance, and it'll just improve it <laughs> yeah, in, a, in a sweeping statement. Mm. So, um, yeah, we tend to use Oris uh, quite, quite liberally. Just checking out why I love this line so much as I, the more I, yeah. the more I cover. Well, it has been such a joy to talk to both of you. Thank you so much for your time and for creating Joram Studio. I'm so excited to, Thank you. to try the rest of the line. And um, for everyone listening, you, you must. Your fragrances are beautiful. Thank oh, you thank much. you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Hopefully you've got something usable there. Perfume Room is edited by Wyatt Peak. Music is by Max Vernon and illustrations are by Israel Rodriguez.